The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. You're listening to an encore presentation of Pilgrim's Progress. We will not be taking calls today. It's clear that we do not live in a time when a man's crimes are rapidly punished. It's a cause and effect world, but the punishment is usually delayed. A man can live on death row for many years before finally receiving the penalty. And in our own lives, we recognize that we have a great leniency in dealing with whatever we need to deal with without any punishment. In fact, often we're able to escape that punishment seemingly altogether. But there is a day of judgment that is coming. Because of this delay in consequences for our actions, men have become very bold in their sin. When we look at Romans, the third chapter, the Apostle Paul says to us, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. You may say, no, pastor, that's not who I am. Let me share with you over here in Second Peter. Second Peter, the second chapter. I'll begin reading with verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. And it's clear that today false teachers have come into the body of Christ and they have introduced destructive heresies that deny the power of the blood of Jesus. We have seen this passage fulfilled. It has brought the way of truth into disrepute. It says in verse 3, In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories that they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. In other words, you can come, I can come, I can teach what I choose to teach, and nothing will happen to me. Perhaps for some time. Perhaps not until the final judgment day. But he's saying, 
that there is a judgment hanging over every person. Verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from their trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desires of the sinful nature and despise authority. This is especially true, he says, of those who continue to follow the corrupt desires. When I look at this passage of Scripture, I have to then go to the third chapter of the book of Second Peter. In verse 3, he says, First of all, you must understand in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. But these waters, and by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget the one thing, dear friend. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear like a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will come about and bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. Look, this is not spiritual talk. This is what we're actually going to see happen in this world. But in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, 
since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. That our Lord's patience means salvation. Verse 17. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the air of lawless men and fall from your secure position. But grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forevermore. There's a passage of scripture in the book of Ecclesiastes, verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 11. It says, Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. A sinner's heart is stubborn and hard. It is fully set to do evil. But I want to take a few minutes today, talk about what is meant by the heart. It's obvious that this term is used in the Bible to mean various things. Sometimes it means the conscience, as in the passage in 1 John 3.20, if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart. Sometimes the term is used for the reason, the mind. But here is most but here in this passage that I just shared with you, it is it is used to mean the willpower. Because this is the only power of the mind that can be said to be set, determined upon a given course of voluntary action. The will is the faculty that sets itself upon a chosen course. Therefore, in our text, the term heart means the will. But in what direction and to what end are the wills of wicked men fully set? They are set to do evil. God's word solemnly affirms that the heart of a sinner man is set on doing evil. Now, remember, as I've shared with you this week, there is one true test to determine whether a system of religion is true or false. And that is, does that system of understanding use the blood of Jesus to totally break the power of sin and to remove sin from a sinner's heart and make him a saint? If it doesn't, it is a false religion. Now, let me say that it does not, this passage I've just shared with you from Ecclesiastes does not imply that men do evil for the sake of evil itself. It does not imply that sinning, considered as disobedience to God, is the direct objective of the person who commits the sin. 
the man who is an alcoholic does not drink because he wants to be evil. But he drinks despite its wickedness. He drinks for the present good it promises him, not for the sake of sinning. I would hazard that very few of you listening to this broadcast today would ever say, I'm going to go sin this afternoon because I want to put it in God's face. No, that's not why we sin. The man who tells a lie, his goal is not to break the law of God, but to get something good for himself by lying. Yet he tells the lie despite God's commandment, thou shalt not lie. His heart may become fully set upon the practice of lying whenever it is convenient for him and he thinks he may gain some good by it. God's efforts to turn him from this are pretty much futile. The same is true of stealing, fornication, adultery. The same is true of pornography and of all other sins. I'm not trying to say today that men set their hearts upon those sins out of love for pure wickedness. That's not the case. They do so for the sake of the good they hope to gain by engaging in that activity. Man would perhaps be glad if it were not wicked to gratify his passion. But though it is wicked, he sets his heart to do it. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Why? Well, because they saw that it was beautiful. They were told that it would make them wise. So they took and ate that fruit, not to spite God, but in order to personally gain. Now, it's sometimes said that sinners love sin for its own sake, out of the pure love of sin is sin, simply because it's disobedience to God with a a natural kind of relish like wolves after flesh. But this is simply not true, certainly not in the cases of those that I speak with. Most that I speak with confess very quickly and very freely that they hate their sin and they don't want to do it anymore. An alcoholic told me, I don't want to ever take another drink, but I'm powerless over my drink. Another man says, I hate this cigarette habit, but I can't kick it, so I smoke. Makes me feel good. It lifts me up. Or another man said to me, Look, I can't turn from my fornication because my heart grows so lonely, I have to go out and devour someone. He said, I know it's selfish. I know I shouldn't do it. But I follow what my heart wants. So the simple truth is men do not set their hearts upon sin for its own sake but rather upon sinning for the sake of the good they hope to gain from it. 
Now, if we look closely at the language of this passage in Ecclesiastes, it says the heart fully set to do evil. One man is greedy. He wants to get money by fair means if possible, but he will be sure to find a way to get it one way or another. Another man is ambitious. The love of fame and reputation fills the fires his soul. He may be a very polite man and a very amiable man, very friendly man in his manners. Sometimes he can even be very religious. But he is altogether selfish. I met a man recently. He is cutting off from his life a number of sins that he's been committing. But he is pursuing money. And in his business, he is willing to do things that are illegal. He's willing to do whatever he has to do because he has to have that money. And so he sets his heart on the money while all the time saying, yes, I'm a Christian. But this man is altogether selfish. He is no less selfish because he wants to be religious. Now, we need to look at this carefully. Selfishness takes on a thousand forms, but each form is sinful. For the whole mind should give itself up to serve God and perform every duty as revealed to one's mind. So what did Eve do? She gave herself up to to gratify her thirst for knowledge and for self-indulgence. She agreed to believe the lying spirit who told her that the tree was desirable to make one wise. In Genesis 3.6, she thought this tree must be very important. It was also apparently good for food, and her appetite was whetted. The more she looked, the more interested she became. And now what should she do? God has forbidden her to touch it. Should she, obey, should she obey God, or should she follow her excited appetite? Remember, she has not walked in sin. This is not a carnal nature. She has to make a decision. Does she want what God has told her, or does she want what this serpent is telling her, this dragon? And she ate the fruit. Was that a sin? Well, many people would say that it was a very small sin. But in fact, it was open rebellion against the God of heaven. She placed her own selfish desire ahead of her responsibility to serve the living God. God could not do anything but avenge that wickedness and they lost their home they lost their paradise they were forced out and then it was okay you want to follow your own selfish desire here's the earth instead of turning it into a garden of eden turn it into what you wish 
and men have been turning the earth into every kind of wicked thing from that day forward. And now in our day we have the GMO foods. 90% of all corn in America is GMO. And many believe it will cause disease and cancer in the person who eats it. Many nations in Europe will not allow GMO food, but in America the door is swung wide open. Monsanto has now made an agreement with a very famous coffee company, Starbucks. To me, Monsanto is public enemy number one. I look at these owners of these corporations and recognize their utter wickedness before God. And we are turning the earth into a barren wilderness. And great judgment will come upon us. Famine and bloodshed, plague, pestilence. It's all coming upon America now. Because we have a different party voted in, does that mean suddenly everything's going to turn around? No. What has created what we see in the world is not a political party. What we see in the world has been created by the wicked hearts of men and women who in their selfishness go after only what they desire regardless of the cost to others. It's the same everywhere today in the world. We yield to the demands of appetite and passion against God's claims, and we commit a grave sin. But we don't understand the gravity of the sin because there is no immediate punishment of that sin. In other words, the man is not taken into the town square and tied to a post and shot the night he commits his grave sin. So year after year, grave sin is committed against God and against the fellow men and women, and there is no immediate punishment granted. And so we think we're getting away with what we want. So even though all men are required to fear and obey God, however much self-denial and sacrifice it may cost us, We have created today in America a religion where you don't have to be converted to go to heaven. You can be half converted and walk in your sin and claim you're saved. This selfishness that I'm speaking of often assumes a religious exterior. At the outset, the mind may be powerfully affected by some of the great stirring truths of the gospel, but then it takes on an entirely selfish view, caring only to escape punishment and to make religion a matter of gain. One man said to me, the reason I want to go to heaven is because I'm afraid to go to hell. The mind misunderstands the intentions of the gospel, losing sight of the great fact that the gospel 
is about removing man's selfishness, crucifying this old nature, and drawing the will of a person into the pure heart of Jesus. When we make the radical mistake of thinking that we can pursue our selfishness and still end up walking with Jesus, if we think we can continue to indulge in our sin and say, I'm sorry, and cry a few crocodile tears and think that that's enough, we will be severely, we will be severely surprised on the great day of judgment. Suppose a certain individual believes that he's saved in the midst of his sin. And he continues to walk in that sin while all the time saying, I'm saved. He somehow supposes that he is entirely exempt from the penalty of violating God's law. He even thinks that he will be honored and rewarded as though he had given full obedience on that great day of judgment, even though he's walked in self-indulgence and a life of sin. This is the most common place of a person who calls themselves a Christian today. And if you carefully look at this person's life, you will see that there is a great selfishness at the bottom of all of his religion. The man was worldly before and devout now, but he is devout for the same reason that he was worldly. His selfish heart is the basis for each system. He seeks the same ends in the same spirit. His moral character has remained unchanged. Now he prays, But if he does, he asks God to do some great thing for him to promote his own selfish purposes. He doesn't have the faintest idea of committing himself to God's interests in such a way that he will be in perfect harmony with God, desiring and seeking only God's interests and having no interest other than the interest of God. You know, let's just say, has happened with me. My wife and I received a phone call from from my late wife's father before they passed. And Dad Yoder asked us to please drive to Ohio to spend some time with them. And so we made arrangements and we took a week off and we drove to Ohio. And Dad said to us, Look, I'm willing to give you the house and I'm willing to give you all of our savings in retirement if you will take care of mom and myself until we die. And if you'll do that, we'll give you the house free and clear and we'll give you all of our savings that remain. And while you live with us, We will pay all the expenses for the house and for food. You'll simply have to pay for your own car 
your own transportation. Now, if you're willing to do this, this is what I'm proposing. Well, we prayed about it, and the Lord was very clear that we were not to go. We were not to do that. Now, as mom and dad grew older and they needed our help, we spent a great deal of time driving back and forth and helping them. In fact, the last month, we were with dad the whole time as he was dying. And then as mom, Yoder, grew older and she was dying, she went to live with one of the other sons, and he took care of her until she died. But this situation poses a very interesting a very interesting problem. Suppose my late wife and I had said, yes, we'll do this. Then you have to question, what were our motives? Why would we say yes to this? When prior to the offering of this wonderful advantage, we had not said, yes, we will come and take care of them and the expense will be upon us. No, there's a, there's a, a knot or a, how should I put it? There is a, there is the possibility of a selfishness for the motivation to go and do just what is necessary to care for them in order to gain the house in order to gain the cash, in order to serve my own interests. And you may say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, yes, there is. What is the driving motive of your heart? Is the driving motive of your heart selfishness to care for you? Or is the driving motive of your heart to serve the living God of heaven and to do only what he asks you to do. This may not be easily, quickly solved in your heart. The ruler of this universe wants and expects the actual devotion of people's hearts. He expects their entire goodwill. If they would give him this much, he would, he would reward them abundantly. That is the promise. But if a man goes to church and pays tithe in order so that he can go to heaven and live for eternity, he is simply another selfish person who is walking in a way he has finally come to understand will gain him what he most desires. A man can be as selfish in praying as he is in stealing. He may even be far more wicked, for he has more seriously mocked the will of God. And he's tried to bribe God with some act of righteousness. As if he could suppose that he could make the Holy Spirit his own instrument. This is to grievously tempt the Lord God of heaven. The text that I shared with you in 
the very beginning of this broadcast today. Let me read it for you again. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. The text affirms that the heart of man is fully set in them to do evil. Perhaps some of you think otherwise. You don't believe in such depravity. A mother may say, I think my daughter is receptive toward religion. Well, do you think she's converted? No. I don't think she's converted, but I think she's at least receptive toward religion. Does she satisfy the claims of God for being a friend of his government and his reputation? I can't give you an answer about that. Ask her to repent. And what does she say? Well, she says she can't repent. How striking the fact that you may go through the ranks of society today and you will find this position almost everywhere. The sinner says, I cannot turn from my sin. I cannot abandon my sin. Well, why? What's the trouble? Go to that daughter thought to be so receptive toward religion. She's a gentle daughter. She's full of love. She can't bear to see any pain inflicted on, a, on an animal. She's strong for animal rights. But what happens when you present to her the claims of God? What does she say? She says, I'm a sinner. I cannot stop sinning. I've tried. I obey God the best I can, but I'm still a sinner. I just can't. I just can't leave all of my sin. But what does it entail to leave your sin? That this young woman friendly toward religion, should be so incapable of doing. What is the matter? Is God so unreasonable in his demands that he imposes upon you things quite impossible for you to do? Or is it that you have no regard for the feelings of God and are so reckless of the truth that for the sake of your own selfish justification, you will charge him with the most flagrant injustice, falsely implying that the wrong is all on his side and none of yours. Is this the friendly, loving character trait that you have in you? Is this one of your proofs that the human heart is not fully set to do evil? You say you cannot leave your sin and fully love God, so you're going to do just the best you can do. You find it quite impossible to make up your mind to serve God and please Him entirely. But what is the matter? Are there not sufficient reasons apparent to your mind why you should give up your heart to God? There's heaven and earth, hell. There's a loving God. There's the scripture. Why can't you leave your sin? The answer is very simple. Because your heart is fully set within you to do evil rather than good. 
you're altogether committed to the pleasing of self instead of Jesus. Now, Jesus may plead with you. You may have friends that talk to you. You can listen to this broadcast where Pastor Ray is going to talk to you. We can press on your heart. But in your mind, your heart is fully set on getting what you want to get. And you say, it would be too expensive for me to give up that passion. I can't give up that fornication. I can't give up my adultery. I can't give up my sinning, my lying, my cheating, my ambition, my my pride, my selfishness. I can't give up all of this. How can I? It's impossible. We're saved in the midst of our sin, aren't we, Pastor? Now, the truth is, it's not cannot. It's will not. And you are responsible for the sin you commit before a holy God, and you will be held accountable on the day of judgment. And if you do not receive the pardon of Christ, if you are not crucified with him, if you do not turn from all sin now, you will surely be cast into the fire of hell at that great day of judgment. Now, I know you're going to insist, Pastor, that's impossible. That's what the scriptures say. It's what the scriptures teach. I know false pastors, false preachers, false and heretical doctrines have been taught to you, comforting you in your sin, telling you that you're doing just fine, telling you that it's impossible for you to leave your sin. A good-natured woman, a lady, may insist that she is not depraved. Oh, no, she's not depraved. She will not steal. True. Her selfishness has a most tender and delicate appearance. She could not bear to see a kitten in distress. But what does she care for God's rights or God's feelings? What does she care for the rights of Jesus Christ? What does she care for the feelings and sympathies of the crucified Son of God? Nothing at all. What then is all of her tender sensitivity worth? Doves and kittens have even more of this than she. She undoubtedly has many tender ties, but they are all under the control of a perfectly selfish heart. All of the sons and daughters of Eve, we all fell with her. We have given up our hearts to a refined selfishness. We reject God's most righteous claims. If you were to go through the ranks of society today, if you were to talk with people who listen to this broadcast, you would see the same thing. 
ask a person to receive an offered Savior and to repent of all sin, I'll give you the same, very same answer. He cannot, he cannot leave his sin. Why? His heart is too fully set on his own will and his determination that he will have his own life. The great cry of my heart has been that you would begin to awaken to this selfishness of your heart and become sensitive to it and become aware of it. And you would begin to go to the Lord and cry aloud and ask him if he would give you the strength and the courage to go get a new heart. It is a horrible commitment of the heart today to do evil. This is why the Holy Spirit is so much needed. To be that divine influence on our hearts that we would confess. But how fearfully strong is the sinner's heart against God, particularly the religious sinner's heart against God, who has believed the lie. What would it take for you today to make the decision that you are going to totally turn from your sin? To set your will to belong to Jesus Christ. To believe him that you can leave your sin, that he will lift it up off your life, And he will set you free. What would it take today for you to actually believe that Jesus came to destroy the devil's work in your heart? And that the blood of Jesus is available to completely release you and set you free. That you no longer have to walk in bondage. That you no longer need the lie that you can walk in sin and still expect to be saved that that lie is useless to you because it does not deliver you into the joy and peace and love of our Lord Jesus Christ. What would it take for you to begin to seriously consider this? This verse of scripture that I've been sharing with you today from Ecclesiastes says, sentence is not executed speedily. Now, this implies that the sentence has already been passed and only awaits the appointed time when it will be carried out on the sinner's life. Have you ever gone to a courtroom and watched as the courtroom becomes totally silent and the judge very solemnly begins to give the sentence of death. The case has been reviewed. It's been decided. The sentence is pronounced. But the execution is not carried out rapidly because they want to give time for that person to seek a pardon. They want to give time to review the court case to make certain. They don't want to execute by accident an innocent person. 
Now, what would you think if this person who has passed all of his final examinations and he is now declared guilty and the execution date is set? And now he goes before a judge to plead for a pardon. And instead of taking responsibility for his actions, he stands up and speaks to the judge in an insulting manner, blaming the court system, blaming the police, blaming others, taking no responsibility for himself. Do you think that judge is going to issue him a pardon? No, you know he's not going to. He's going to He's going to say go to your execution. Jesus has us just in that position. Sentence has been declared on you and on me. It's the death sentence. It has already been passed. The punishment is in place. We are simply waiting now for the execution date. We appear before the judge. Will we say to the judge, It's your fault. I didn't have the power to stop doing it. And the judge says, You had the will. And you could have said no. And you say, Oh, no, no, I couldn't. I tried. I tried as hard as I could, but I could not say no. And if you release me, I'm going to go do it again. If you set me free, I'm just going to go do the same thing all over again. What do you think that judge would say? He would be utterly foolish to release you into society to go commit the same crime all over again. We have to come to terms with this. We are judged guilty before God. We have been sentenced to die. We can now appear before the judge of all the earth, and we can plead our case. And there is only one answer that will be sufficient. And that is not throwing ourselves upon the mercy of the court. The only answer is I must be a new creation. I must be a new person. I must be totally changed. I must be able to say that as I have endured this prison time, I have become a totally different person. I will never again commit this crime. I will do all in my power now to serve what is right and to be a good citizen. And in our case, the judge has every right to release you because he shed his blood for you. Many of you, I suspect, have lived much of your life like I have, getting up in the morning, going to work, taking care of whatever needs to be taken care of, going to bed that night, getting up the next morning and going through it again, and going to bed and getting up the next day and doing it again. And so we live our lives totally unaware that a judgment of death has been passed against us. Oh, we know 
in our heart, in our mind, that, yes, all men die. But I'm speaking about something far beyond that. I'm talking about the second death. That if you have not turned completely in your behavior from your wicked ways, if you have not been made into a new creature, a new person, then you will not receive the pardon. It doesn't matter what all the other prisoners say. It doesn't matter what all the pastors teach. The scripture says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do. Galatians 3.10 The heart of man is set fully to do evil. It is a perversion and abuse of the gracious design of Jesus Christ. So what are we going to do? We're almost out of time today. Saying, Lord, what will it take for for men and women to turn from the foolish deception that they're saved in the midst of their sin and recognize that they must be born from above and they must become new creatures in Jesus Christ. Every provision has been made for you to become a new creature, but on every hand, you're hearing, oh, don't worry, be saved. I want to tell you it's time to flee to the throne of God. It's time to anguish in our hearts over the sin we have committed against God. It's time to repent and turn. And the only way you can do that is if you set your will, that regardless of the cost, you're going to follow Jesus Christ. You will not turn to the left or to the right. You can go about your business today. You can earn your money. You can go out to eat. You can go to the club and work out. You can go to the lounge or the club and drink. You can do whatever you want to do today. Because the judgment has not yet been passed on your life. But know this, there is a death sentence on your life. And the only way that death sentence will be lifted is if you're crucified with Jesus Christ and you give up all sin. And you turn and walk in righteousness with him. Otherwise, you will die. Now, just some things I need to share with you quickly. And then I want to pray with you as we close this broadcast today. You're listening to Ray Greenley from Pilgrim's Progress. I'm pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. You can go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. I thank each of you who has contributed for the month of that we've just passed. Now, we're in a new month, and I ask you to please consider if this broadcast is calling to your heart and it's helpful to you in your walk with Jesus, would you help us with the cost of the broadcast? You can write to the National Prayer Chapel, 
Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You notice this last month we did not do an offertory day because enough of you sent checks and cash contributing that we didn't need an offertory day. I'm very grateful for that. It allowed me an extra day of teaching. So write to me, the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Lord Jesus, as we come to the end of this broadcast, we've dealt with a very serious matter of the absolute selfishness of a man or woman's heart. I pray, Lord, that great conviction will come into the hearts of men and women and they will turn from their selfishness, and they will turn from the lie that they cannot leave their sin. Lord, I pray that you will instill in every heart a determination to get right with you, no matter what the cost, that they will give their will to you, Jesus, and that by the power of your blood and by the influence, your divine influence through the Holy Spirit, your grace will flow for them. I ask. Almighty God, I ask for a new creation. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, and you'll find out where we're located here in Woodbridge, Virginia. You're welcome to come and worship with us. You're welcome to worship with the people who have left their sin behind and walk righteous before God. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon. Before the presence of His glory with great joy.